Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning again. Uh, It is hour two of Mornings with Carmen on the Faith Radio Network. If you missed hour one, you can go catch it at MyFaithRadio.com or on the Faith Radio app. We had some really provocative conversations and, you know, I said some things. There you go. That you might not want to miss. Oh, you might not want to miss what I said about God loving you. He does, by the way, which is a spoiler alert. I don't know. Do you have to listen to the other hour now? I don't know. It was summed up in this. God loves you. Mm, It's a good way to start. President Biden is in Brussels. That's a place in case you're, I don't know, in case you're not familiar with all the places in Europe. Brussels is a place. It's not just a sprout, which I had in mind when I read the word Brussels this morning. President Biden is in Brussels meeting with European leaders. Um, Here's what they're talking about. Uh, They're talking about Russia and they're talking about Ukraine. They might also now be talking about uh, North Korea, at least having a side chat about that. I'll tell you why in just a moment. Here are what I anticipate to be the announcements um, out of the meeting between President Biden and his European counterparts. I believe they are going to announce uh, how they are going to get Europe supplied with oil without depending on Russia. So right now it's something like $5 billion a day that Europe is pumping into Russia's war machine because it buys so much oil from Russia. So um, I believe we're going to hear a solution to that today. I also think they're going to announce additional sanctions against Russia. And there still are lots of options um, for for them in, in terms of sanctions. So I think that's all going to start today um, or be announced today. I also uh, understand they're going to do a lot of scenario planning related to the kind of support not only to give Ukraine now, but what to do if and when Putin escalates the war by the use of cyber, chemical, biological, or tactical nukes, um, all of which seem to be anticipated, which is terrifying on the face of it. Um, Added to that, uh, apparently, and this is according to uh, the Washington Post and other outlets, also um, uh, the former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, um, he, he said, look, we're doing all of this scenario planning But um, we also may be, and here's the phrase you're going to hear, sleepwalking into war because senior leaders here in the United States uh, can't just pick up the phone and get their military counterparts in Russia to answer because apparently um, most of our calls have been rejected. Now, that leaves um, the the world's two most significant nuclear powers in the dark about what the other is doing. So um, it's one thing, you know, to have a bat phone. It's another thing if nobody answers it. And so uh, let's be praying that uh, the lines of communication would be reopened um, and that Russian counterparts in the Kremlin to uh, military 
leaders here in the United States, um, let's just play. Let's just let's just ask that those lines would be you know reopened and that, that they'd be answering. In the meantime, the White House has formed a Tiger Team. That's the name of it, Tiger Team of national security officials who are sketching out responses for the United States and our allies if quote Putin unleashes his stockpiles of chemical, biological, and nuclear weapons. So that is uh, reported in the New York Times today. Meanwhile, because I think he doesn't want to be ignored or forgotten, North Korea's um, Kim Jong-un has flexed his muscles. Um, As the meeting in Brussels got underway, uh, North Korea um, launched another um, ICBM, um, and it's the first one. This is an intercontinental ballistic missile, so those are missiles that uh, have the capability of... uh, of not only flying at very, very high altitudes. This one flew at um, uh, 6,000 kilometers or 3,700 miles, um, and it flew to a distance of more than 1,000 kilometers, and it had a flight time of 71 minutes before it splashed down in the waters off of Japan's western coast on Thursday. I am sure that made Japan very, very nervous, but it also raised the eyebrows and sort of the alert signals around the world that North Korea um, has now ICBMs capable of carrying nuclear warheads anywhere in the world. And that's a problem. Okay, and then there was this. On the third and excruciatingly long day of questioning of Supreme Court nominee Katanji Brown-Jackson, um, Cory Booker gave a, a speech that I think is worth, worth listening to. Uh, Senator Lindsey Graham asked her to rate the importance of her religious faith on a scale of one to ten. So that's what I'm going to ask Dr. Peter Kapsner when he joins us in just a moment. Peter, could you rate your faith during an interview, dinner, during the equivalent of a job interview? Would you be comfortable rating your faith on a scale of one to ten? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. It is Thursday morning, and so he is here, bright and shiny. Good morning, sir. <laughs> Good morning, Carmen. Hey, thanks in advance for hosting the show tomorrow. Yeah, great lineup tomorrow that, of course, uh, Paul Pro uh, always puts together, right, every day. But uh, looking forward to the guest tomorrow, for sure. Well, Carmen has yeah. something to do with this, Well, of course too. she does. Really? Of course Come she on. does. Yeah, so that's very true. <laughs> It's fine. It's fine. So Peter's going to be here um, visiting with you tomorrow because I need to go check up on my parents. So there you go. So, Peter, thanks uh, in advance for that. Um, Do you feel like uh, I'm going to ask you in just a moment. Do you feel like you've lived up to your name? Um, And we um, we have called your parents to ask that question. Um, But no, 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 not really. But I'm going to start with the question that Senator Lindsey Graham asked yesterday of Supreme Court nominee Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. Um, about rating her faith on a scale uh, of one to 10. So um, I guess I'll just start with Peter. Could you rate your faith and the importance of your faith um, to your life on a scale of one to 10? I mean, uh, what, what a question to be asked. And Lin- Lindsey Graham to ask. I mean, yet, uh, of course, I mean, what am I going to say? I'm on a Christian radio station right now. Am I going to say a three? <laughs> of course, I'm not going to say that. And, and yet, I mean, if I was, you know, just you and me Which chatting. Which direction does the scale go? See, well, exactly. I would have, have been that person. Yeah. I would have been like, okay, I'm going to need you to describe the scale. Can I go outside of these limits? <laughs> sure. Is it possible to rate myself an 11? Does that sound like not sufficiently humble? <laughs> 
<laughs> so see, that's exactly it. What are the metrics? What are the criteria? What are we asking about here? I mean, and clearly, I love Jesus. Me I do. In a job interview. Totally. Oh, it just you know the the theater that is Washington D.C. would you know if it wasn't so serious, it would almost be a Saturday Night Live skit. You know, there there's such serious things happening, but you kind of step back and just slap your palm on your forehead and think seriously. Th- this is what we're doing right now. This is okay, so yeah. Here was my fear <clears throat> because yesterday um, on the show. We had a guest who, um, he's he's one of the sons of Ray Ortland. So his name is Eric. And one of the things that he said is really significant in terms of, of growing up. Um, one of the really significant things that his dad said was, you know, you can, you know, I'm going to support you. You follow your passion, you know, live your dream. The one thing you are not allowed to be, you cannot be, you may not be, you shall not be a mediocre Christian. Mm. So I wondered if Lindsey Graham heard the show. And then he thought to himself... <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to check and see if she, among other things like, right, is she living up to yeah. the calling? Like she calls herself a Christian. She calls herself a Protestant. She does not, um, you know, lay claim to any particular denominational brand. Um, so uh, so he then, you know, follows up by asking the question, well, why don't you rate yourself on a scale of one to ten? I think that explains it, Carmen. I think clearly he heard your show and thought, I've got to bring the mind of Christ into the Supreme Court hearing and decided to ask the question the way that he did. I mean, oh, you know, and and here's the thing. So one of the things that's sad about this is I think. A lot of believers, understanding, uh, understandably, are looking for some measure of hope, some measure of um, maybe some intellectual and moral fabric to be demonstrated by our public officials. And so we do look at Washington, D.C. for that to happen. And then we kind of almost pick our favorites sometimes who represent that hope. And, and I think we're so far departed from what the Christian witness can and should be in terms of how we present ourselves publicly. So there's probably a lot of people that said, yeah, get her, Lindsey Graham. I mean, that's the gotcha question. And I think... By what metrics do we decide that that is effective kingdom life? And maybe we need to rethink that. And and again, it's such theater. And it would if it wasn't so serious, it would be just comical. Yeah. So um, there's another question that was asked that people are actually more interested in hearing us talk about. And that is the question of whether or not um, she could define or would define the the word woman. And so we're going to get to that in just a moment. Um, Just for reference, in Genesis 3.20, Adam names Eve because God declared her to be a woman. So there you go. That is the short answer to the woman question in case you were wondering. Um, But when we come back from a very, very brief break, I'm going to ask uh, Peter Kapsner about living up to one's given name. Uh, The the headline hook here is that Kylie Jenner revealed that uh, she and Travis Scott, who had a son and named him Wolf, I mean, something I missed, um, uh, they have decided that his name is not Wolf anymore because he wasn't living up to the name. He's a newborn, by the way. All right, so we're going to talk about the given name, uh, what it means to be given a name and live up to that name in just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. This is Faith Radio. When Continuing our conversation with Dr. Peter Kapsner. Um, uh, so, Peter, um, failing to live up to a name, um, particularly, you know, a name that's given at birth. I was given the name Carmen Suzette Fowler. My name is now Carmen Fowler LaBerge. So I have had a change of name along the way. Um, I'm, I, I think that when I was born, my parents picked a name that they thought, you know, sounded good. 
I don't think that they imagined that they were placing on me a name into which I would have to live up. But apparently um, these two individuals who named their child Wolf um, already think that this newborn isn't living up to his name. I don't exactly know what a child would be doing or not doing at such an early age. But um, it did lead me to the question about naming and names that are given in the Bible and the way God gives names and what's in a name. So I thought it'd be fun to roam around with you on this subject. Yeah, that is a fun subject, actually. If somebody wanted to take maybe six months and just go through biblical names, uh, it, it's it's probable that the Hebrew writers who eventually got around to writing down the stories that had been passed around from generation to generation in an oral tradition Usually by the time of Solomon is is when scholars tend to think that we start seeing a lot of these written stories. But when they look back uh, in the Hebrew context and in, in their worldview, their metaphysic, if we want to use the fancy word, uh, the names were representative of what that person did. It, it was representative of that person's function. And so looking back, it, it seems like they even named some of the characters according to their function. So I, I love the story of Ruth, for example. Ruth means friend of God. She represented the hesed, love of God. The Hebrew word hesed means to never forsake. And so when she has this penultimate moment with Naomi where she says, where you go, I will go, and your people will be my people, and your God will be my God, and where you live, I will live, and where you die, I will die. Like, that expression is this hesed, this never forsaking love. And she, that's what it means to be a friend to somebody is what we see with Ruth and Naomi. It's a covenant kind of love. Or by contrast in that story, uh, Naomi's uh, boys who die early in the story, Malon and Chilean, their, their names mean sickness and death, which is why they died right away. And, and there's just such prominence in the Hebrew language around names. Or Jacob, you, you talked about changing the name. Jacob means to supplant or to usurp, and which is what he did when he took the birthright. But when he wrestles with God and God changes his name to Israel, it means he who will overcome. And, he, and he's representative then of the nation of Israel in that way. So it's really fun to do a study of names. Of course, the most important is at the end of that beautiful genealogy in Matthew chapter one, where it says, and he, then they will name him Jesus. And, and now here's the function part for he will save his people from their sins. And so everywhere Jesus went, he was breaking the power of sin and death, thus demonstrating his name for the world around him. But to your point, we don't tend to name for those reasons right now. And that's neither bad nor good. But but I don't think that we can take how we name people in 21st century American context and say you should be living up to that name. The Hebrew people were looking backwards and saying they did live into their names in these ways. And, and it's a really fun study to understand the stories of these prominent VeggieTales kinds of characters through the lens of what they did in the midst of their story. It's It's a blast. I love our listeners, if I haven't mentioned that already. Um, Carmen... I am hearing from people, not only means song, but garden, orchard, fertile land. Oh, that doesn't sound like you at all. You are the the tender of the garden. Vineyard of God. That's brilliant. I love that. Look at my brilliant parents naming me something that would be productive and fruitful. Well, now see, now I'm all excited. Yeah. And that that's and and just like your name represents you. I mean, clearly Peter means rock. And I mean, there's any number of directions we go with that from the the strength of my rambling muscles. I can't even I can't even go any further into that conversation. We should stop there. Stop right Mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. Stop right there. Um, So um, what's in a name? I think this is a, a, a fun conversation when you're looking at a headline like, you know, one about a baby that doesn't live up to his name. Um, You can think about the names of Scripture. You can think about the name of God. You can think about the way names are used in the Bible, the people in the Bible. 
who go by different names or are renamed. Those are all kinds of great ways for you to kind of redeem a conversation from the headline news. You could also talk about being baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Um, just all kinds of things. And then Revelation 2, verse 17, is something that I want us to uh, remember here. To everyone who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Mm. And I will give a white stone, and on the white stone is written a new name that no one knows but the one who receives it. So in Christ, you have uh, a hidden name, a secret name. It's written on a white stone, and he's going to hand it to you when he greets you in heaven. Uh, That's pretty extraordinary. That's pretty extraordinary. That is extraordinary. That's one of my favorite uh, but untalked about passages of Scripture, what it means to get that name when we come into the other side and being raised imperishable and and, and what you even reference in terms of being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And and to to be baptized means to be immersed or surrounded by. And another study somebody could do uh, is what are all of the various names for God in the biblical text that describe his function, that describe how he is in those moments. And so then you, you begin to picture your, your journey of faith as you're walking one step uh, forward to the next, the next, the next in this life with a shepherd at your side. You're, you're invited to be surrounded by all of these names of God. I mean, it just, it would help us, I think, reimagine the inexhaustibility of God and all of the ways in which he interacts with his creation. I, I love it when Paul says, you know, in him, we live and move and have our being. We, we are meant to live in a God-bathed, immersed life. And, and to get a picture of who this God is, just go do a study of all of the names of God in the biblical text. And, and I think our minds will expand greatly about this wonderful God we serve. Yeah, I just... Yeah, it's just so incredible. It's so incredible. Such it a it's such a full and rich conversation. All right, so we um, have like just a minute to talk about this very important question that was asked of Supreme Court nominee um, Brown Jackson about defining the word woman. She resisted doing so, saying she's not a biologist. Um, but here's the good news about that. That suggests to me that she does think that being a woman has something to do with biology. That's mm-hmm. actually a good thing. Yeah, it is. Um, and, and just quickly, I spent the last five days uh, in a seminary intensive program with a number of pastors and people who are working on the front lines in Ukraine and, and just a whole variety of people from around our country and working globally. And, and the common uh, summary or, or conclusion that we came to related to these conversations of gender and sexuality is that we just can't continue to let academia Uh, drive the conversations about what constitutes male and female. But not only that, the conversation is so important and has so many different tentacles to it that for the church to only be gathering for one hour on a weekend or maybe one hour on a Wednesday night alongside of that, um, as good as those gatherings are, and they are good, they aren't enough to be able to deal with the, the complexity of these issues that would even cause one of our public officials to sort of blanch or hem and haw about the idea of what is female. How did we get to this point? It's, it's been 60 years in the making, and so more, we need two, more than two hours in a public gathering uh, weekly to be able to do the work required to start unwinding this and bring some health back into the conversation because this is where we are, and it's a bit of a crisis right now right now. There's a lot out there um, on this topic. We should do more than roll our eyes um, at the cultural conversation about this. Um, I might have been interested to hear the question redirected when she said, you know, I'm not a biologist. Um, I might have been interested to hear a redirect. Okay. 
So I'm not asking you to comment on the meaning of the word woman as a biologist. Can you comment on the meaning of the word woman as a woman? Could you comment on the meaning of the word woman as a judge because you are going to be called upon to interpret the meaning of the word woman? I would like to know your judgment on that as a judge. Those would have been the right questions, right? We would have gotten to the heart of a few things with that I, in those moments. I I, you should go to Washington, Carmen. I mean, this is, this is where you belong. Can you, if you could just bring the mind of Christ directly into Washington. I, if I could be your clerk or whatever that person is, I would love to be your clerk in Washington, D.C. <laughs> oh, you're so kind. I just really, really like a way to send, like, crib notes to the people who do get to ask the questions. Right. Exactly. I agree. Yeah. Agreed. Crib, crib, Carmen's crib notes. All right. Um, that's all the time we have to talk with Dr. Peter Kapsner today. But you, you're going to enjoy your time with him tomorrow. He's going to host the show so that I can go check up on my parents. So, Peter, in advance, thank you for taking care of things tomorrow. Yeah, for sure. Have a great weekend, Carmen. I hope it's a great time <laughs> listen, with your parents. Listen to Paul and his ridiculous music. I, you yeah. know, that's, <laughs> that's the Carmen He's Ghost a Washington music. Yeah. I love right. that. We'll, we'll be right back. Today, I'm hungry and I'm ready for change. I run to borders to be the same. We had the opportunity to talk with Rick Morton um, uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, he serves with Lifeline Children's Services as their vice president of engagement. But Rick is also a pastor. Um, he's grown his own family through adoption. He is an author of lots of resources related to um, orphanology, like actually thinking about um, orphans and the way we should think about it. Um, and and how we as Christians um, can actually be fully equipped for a ministry, a life um, that includes people who were not, you know, genetically born to us, but but into uh, into relationship with whom we are called in Christ. And so we've invited Rick uh, back today. We're going to talk about the response of Lifeline Children's Services to the orphan crisis in Ukraine and the, on the challenge being faced there and how they're engaging with that. But we're also going to dig around a little more with him um, just on the topic of adoption in general. Um, we're going to get personal about his own family. Should be a good conversation. Rick Morton, up next, here on Mornings with Carmen. We've invited Rick Morton back. You can find him at lifelinechild.org. Rick, thanks for coming back. Carmen, thanks for having me. So um, bring us up to speed. We're hearing, we're hearing terrible stories. The numbers are incredible. 1.5 million children, um, a part of the refugee flow already out of Ukraine. We've heard stories of trafficking. We've um, we've heard, you know, stories of children with special needs who obviously are at increased risk. Um, you know, what are you hearing? What are the stories that you're um, not only hearing but passing along and telling? Well, Carmen, I think the toll that this war is taking on children is uh, epic in nature. I mean, in addition to the 1.5 million children that you're talking about that are displaced out of the out of the country, uh, UNICEF is now estimating that there are two and a half million children that are displaced within Ukraine. So fully more than 50 percent of the children in Ukraine are 
displaced out of their homes at this point. And I think part of the the crisis that's really not being talked about a lot here is for those of us that work in child welfare, um, we talk in terms a lot about adverse child experiences. And, and I think the long reaching effects of the trauma that is being inflicted on children at this point, um, and this war is stalled. I mean, it's, it, it's going nowhere fast. And, and so these are looking to be long-term situations that are gonna, gonna really come to bear on the development of children and, and on, their, you know, on their most formative years. And, and so we, that, that doubles down our reason for, for needing to be involved and, and needing to press in uh, as much as we possibly can. For folks who are thinking right now, all right, I'm praying, um, what else can I do? What, is, you know, what are your top two or three answers to that question? It's a great question. I, I think in the in the moment, um, certainly we we want to pray, and and I think we, you know, at a time like this, we realize how much of the the epic nature of this crisis has placed it outside of our hands, and so we want to we want to trust God to to bring solutions to bear and and to mobilize the church into doing the the right things. Uh, second thing I think I would say is to to give to reputable ministries that are. That have a proven track record and and reputable ministries that will protect children. We've already heard stories of uh, situations where where traffickers with bad intent have gone in and preyed on the vulnerability of children that are displaced from Ukraine. Uh, I think one of the scary parts of this is is a lot of well-meaning, well-intentioned people uh, who are who are doing things to bring harm. We heard a story last week uh, of a group of fifty orphans that were brought out of Ukraine, out of a private orphanage, and someone who was trying to move them and, and was trying to make these children available for adoption. Um, and, and right now, at, at this point in the crisis, adoption is not the proper question. Uh, we don't know whether these children, many of them are true orphans or, or not at this point. We don't know, uh, many are separated from their parents and, and, and we really don't know the status. And, and so we need to be prepared to do things like foster care, where we bring trained, resourced, um, well-prepared people to provide temporary care and to provide safety and stability for these children. Uh, but, but we don't need to be thinking, I think, in terms of, of uh, you know, permanent solutions at this point, because we really just don't know uh, the long-term status of, of many of these children. And then finally, just the humanitarian crisis that is a part of this. So providing food, clothing, and shelter for those both that are uh, that, that have come out of Ukraine and, and are, have become refugees, but those that are displaced within the country. And so here at Lifeline, we're really trying to work on both uh, supplying the needs of Ukrainians who have, have fled the conflict into another country, but also trying to mobilize supplies back into areas where people have been displaced. So into the West and, and into the Southern part of Ukraine, where, where folks have fled internally in the country. We're talking with Rick Morton from Lifeline Child Services, uh, lifelinechild.org. Rick, when you think about what these children are experiencing, I mean, we know kids are resilient, but trauma is real. Um, Privation is real. Fear is real. And it has long-term consequences. Can Can you talk a little bit about what you know about children um, and 
how we might be not only praying specifically, but um, how we might be thinking about the resources that are going to be needed, not just today, but into the future related to this. Carmen, in the in the 21st century, part of what we have come to understand is a deeper level of how we're fearfully and wonderfully made. And I think God has, has l- allowed us to live in an age where we can see uh, through functional MRI scans and, and through other means, we can see how the brain develops. We can understand more about our physiology than we ever have been, been able to understand before. And, and part of what we know is that trauma, specifically trauma that happens in early in life during those formative years and, and through our childhood, has very real consequences that are, that are both um, chemical, but also are physiological. And so literally, it's not an overstatement to say that adverse child experiences and, and early trauma affects the way that the brain develops. And, and so what we have to understand about the things that are happening to children in Ukraine today and children that, are, that have been displaced out of Ukraine today is that these very scary experiences and their lack of felt safety are going to have consequences for their lifetime. We're blessed to understand, uh, or not really understand, not, uh, actually, that, that there is that the, the idea of resilience. And, and so some children fare better than others in that. But, but there's, there's sort of a universal pattern that, um, th- that really affects all of development. One of the things that we've seen for years in, in working with children, particularly older children and children that have come out of really complex circumstances, is that trauma really has an effect even on their cognitive development. It has, a, it has an effect on their ability to, to reason and, and to problem solve well, and uh, it, has, it has effects on their learning. And so uh, part of what, what I think we have to begin to prepare ourselves to do now is to pour the resources into Ukraine and the surrounding countries over the years that, that are to follow so that, so that we're addressing uh, the trauma that's occurring now and, and really helping families to know how to parent well so that, that they don't exacerbate the trauma of their children and, and that the support services around, so the church and the school and, and, and all of these other social in, uh, institutions that come around children are prepared to meet their differences that have been created as a result of the trauma. Mm, so helpful. All right, we're talking with Dr. Rick Morton, um, he shepherds the Lifelines Outreach to Individual Church and Organizational Ministry Partners, as well as the ministry's commitment to publishing resources that aid families and churches in discipling orphans and vulnerable children. Um, you can find him at lifelinechild.org. Um, Rick, when we come back, can we talk about the Families Count um, mentor training that's available on your site? Because I think that one of the questions people frequently ask is, you know, how can I help families at risk in my own community? How can I um, be, you know, the, the kind of Christian in a congregation that comes around families that are at risk in my own, in my own town, in my own place? Can we talk about uh, families count? Absolutely. And that, that'll be an exciting conversation for us to have. All right, that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
All right, we're talking with Dr. Rick Morton. You can find what we're talking about at lifelinechild.org. Um, this Families Count mentor training that's free on your website caught my attention. So can you talk with us a little bit about Families Count and um, and how we can be involved in our own congregations um, in this, you know, in this ministry effort? Carmen, the, the story of Families Count actually begins uh, with Lifeline working in the foster care space in general. And so we like a lot of other ministries around the country, uh, delved in a number of years ago to, to begin to uh, help to recruit and, and train and mobilize families into foster care. I think the deeper we got into foster care as a ministry, the more we really became under conviction from the Lord that we were, we were only addressing uh, a part of the problem, really only addressing half of the problem. And, and so there was uh, there was a deep realization on our part that um, we were spending a lot of effort bringing the gospel to bear in the lives of children who were caught up in the child welfare system, but we were not addressing the the parents and the family system uh, with the gospel as well. And and realizing that that part of the complexity of the foster care system, in especially here in the United States, is that um, the goal of the foster care system is to send children home and for them to be reunified with their their birth families. And, and that some of the greatest damage that happens to children is this cycle of impermanence that takes place when children are bounced from foster care placement back to home, back to foster care placement, back into their home again. And, and this, this cycle that goes on over and over and over again and the root cause of that is actually that there's no transformation that's taking place in the lives of the child's parents. And, and so really, we sort of pulled back and said, you know, there's a, there's a sense here in which we're not really respecting what Paul has said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where he talks about the fact that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. So we believe that the gospel has power right here and right now. It's not just about life with Christ and, and, and reconciliation with the Lord, you know, forever in the sweet by and by. There's, there's transformative power in the gospel today. And, and that as the ambassadors of that, that ministry that the Lord has given us, we're God's representatives. We, we have to be representing the gospel into the lives of these families. And so what rose up out of that conviction was um, a realization that, that there's, a, there's a part of the system that exists uh, almost universally across the U.S., which is that there are parenting classes that are, that are part of families' uh, case plan in order to work toward getting their children back or in, in order to work toward keeping their children at home when they've entered the, the child welfare system. And so what we, what we really found is that these classes provide an opportunity for the church to do what the church is, is really great in, to, to teach in small groups, to provide child care, to provide transportation, to provide meals, uh, but also to do that in a forum where we're teaching biblically-based, gospel-centered parenting classes that point parents over and over back to the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ and point to, to God's heart and God's design for the family. And they're doing that in an environment where the church is raising up mentors that are walking with these parents week in and week out, really helping them to process what it is that they're learning, but helping them to, to understand how to apply that into their context. And 
and I think we, you know, what we have observed in this is, is that many of these parents are failing because, because they're caught in generational cycles of poverty and abuse and neglect. They, they don't know how to, um, how to do differently with their children. And really what they need is the, the caring, consistent presence of people who will, who will teach and who will model and who will mentor them, um, and, and they need that in the context of a changed life, a life that's been made over by Christ. And, and so the, the story of Families Count is that where uh, these parenting classes, quite honestly, are a concept that, that are not respected within the, the child welfare system at large. It's sort of one of those things that everybody does, but nobody believes in. But what we've seen happen is that when the church gets involved and when the church brings um, just being the body of Christ to bear and, and when the gospel is present in those, in those situations, we've seen incredible success. And so what's been really fun about this is to see the, the way that, that the governments and, and other people in positions of authority in child welfare have really come to rely on the church and have come to respect the church um, as a partner with the church prioritizes bringing the thing that we, that we ultimately have to, to offer, which has the greatest value. And, and so what what's kind of happened in this is that many times I think we we get the message that we we need to sort of soft pedal the gospel or put it on the back burner in order to be accepted in in those wider circles and and in circles of government. But the truth is we've seen just the opposite happen. That when the church brings this as a free resource to the community and says we just want to do this to serve and we want to bring the one thing that we have of value, which is a which is a story that that brings transformation in the lives of people that, um, that quite honestly, there have been very few barriers to being able to bring this sort of training um, to communities all around the United States. And so it's an incredible success story of, of fundamentally God's people just doing what it is that, uh, that God's people are called to do in, in proffering the gospel and, and providing, you know, life on life discipleship for families that have just been very far from that for all of their lives. Yeah, we, we, we don't know what, what we don't know. Like it's hard to um, project a vision of what your family should look like or could look like, or could be like if you were raised in um, without an intact family. I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine you know, sitting down and sharing uh, an evening meal together consistently with your family if you literally never grew up with a table in your house. I mean, like, I mean, it's or with a or with a person who consistently provided food and, you know, and actually served it. I mean, it, it it I think that we imagine that everybody grew up like we grew up. And that's just not true. Um, and the way that I grew up and the way that you grew up may be very, very different. Um, mm-hmm. But somehow I imagine that because we're in church together, we all grew up exactly the same way. And that's just foolishness. I mean, it really is when you just sit down for one second and think about it. So we can't imagine becoming what we've never seen. And so I think that part of what you're talking about is letting people experience um, our families modeling what family can look like, what it can look like to live together in peace and mutual respect, where, you know, we have generationally different ages of disciples, all mutually encouraging one another. Yes, parents being mm-hmm. parents, and but children being 
um, you know, brought up, I mean, actually like discipled and that this mutual discipleship thing is ultimately what we as Christians, you know, like recognize, like I recognize that my kids, yeah, they're kids, but they're also fellow believers. I'm going to spend eternity with them. And in eternity, everybody catches up with everybody else. Like, it's not like, you know, I'm always going to be your older sister in Christ. Like, right. At some point, we're just sisters in Christ. And that growing into that um, is something that has to be modeled and experienced. I, I just I love what you're doing. I, I just really appreciate it. Carmen, let me let me share a story with you. And I think this kind of illustrates the, the sorts of things that happen in Families Count. So we had uh, a co-leader couple, Families Count. The classes are actually taught by married couples that are that are there to really model marriage and family uh, to the the folks that are that are coming to the class. And and by the way, these are not always families who have had their children removed by CPS. These can be families that are referred there by the church. And so the church sees that there needs to be some family strengthening that happens. And this is a great forum for that. At other times, these are families that that this is a preventative. And, and so child welfare or the courts have recommended that families take these classes because they're trying to keep them out of the system and, and, and really trying to head off what they see as problems. But there was a, a particular church that, w- that had a class going on, and in one of the classes, they were talking about uh, conflict resolution in, in families. And, um, and so at the end of the class, one of the participants came up to the wife and, and said to her, I don't believe what you're saying. She said, I, I don't believe I, that, that, you, that you resolve conflict in your home the way that you're telling us. I just don't believe that's possible. And, and so they, they talked for a few minutes. And finally, the young lady just almost dared uh, the family's count leader and said, well, okay, if this is true, then the next time you have a conflict like this, I want to come to your house and I want to see the two of you fight. Um, and so honestly, the, the, the co-leaders talked about it a little bit and said, you know, actually that probably is something that she, she should see. And so they uh, reached a point on a weekend where they were sort of crossways with each other about an issue that they were trying to resolve in their family. And, and they, they sort of stopped and held the discussion. They went and picked her up. They brought her in. They said, sit down on the couch and mm-hmm. be quiet. They they worked through the conflict and and they and they resolved it like they always do, and mm-hmm. and they turned around and found this young lady and she was literally in tears on their couch, and and what she said was she said I have never seen two people have an argument where one of them didn't end up throwing mm-hmm. things or angry or screaming. And I've never seen a conflict where, where someone didn't leave and never come back. Mm. And, and I think the power of um, God's people opening our lives and, and giving uh, a window into what the, what the transformation of the gospel produces in our hearts and in our homes so is good. just an incredibly winsome opportunity to, to affect some people that just quite honestly are really far from our churches. The, the Carmen, the fun part about this is, is that, that these folks are literally being invited to our door. We don't have to go find them. Um, the, the community hey, Rick, is helping it. us find them. It's so yeah. great. I, I just love it. I, I just so appreciate <laughs> it. We're completely out of time. You guys can find the families count mentor training 
at lifelinechild.org. You can also connect there with Dr. Rick Morton. Thank you so much for joining the conversation today. Dr. Peter Kapsner will be um, here with you tomorrow. I'm going to go check up on my parents. Thanks for your prayers and grace as I travel. Have a grace day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.